This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Political pressure for greater media scrutiny of the government ramped up this week, especially on the touchy topic of vaccines and how to run Parliament, leading to some fairly odd encounters between certain politicians and reporters. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great, thank you, Tova. Also, broadcasters' bottom lines are bouncing back big time after the COVID crisis knocked them back in 2020, especially at state-owned TVNZ. So why has TVNZ's boss announced this week he's giving up the top job there? But before all that, Media Watch looks at how our media reacted to another shocking act of terrorism at home. I have no symptoms. Police in full PPE cornering this man more than 12 hours after he escaped a quarantine facility. Staff there, none the wiser. On Friday morning, the man making New Zealanders angry was the Ellerslie MIQ escapee, the 23-year-old who busted out of a Novotel just hours after beginning his stretch there and who had already been pinged for not following the rules after a positive COVID test. And as that report from TVNZ's Laura James showed, if he was trying to stay out of MIQ, he wasn't the smartest, posting and broadcasting himself on Facebook like that. Indeed, his own family actually dobbed him in, as Laura James' remarkable report revealed. His mum speaking to us from inside the Holiday Inn, where she's isolating. Myself and my husband are proud of what we did because it's hard for us parents to speak up and report our own sons. I think that I did the right thing. Once that news broke, everyone wanted to know who this guy was, where he'd been and what were the chances he'd infected others. And also, why didn't we hear about it sooner from the Prime Minister, who knew about it by the time of the daily 1pm briefing on Thursday, but said nothing. But by Friday afternoon, another man, also known to the Prime Minister and police as a danger, took over as public enemy number one. In breaking news, emergency services are rushing to a popular shopping centre in West Auckland after an incident at a supermarket. It's understood it relates to an incident at Lynn Mall's countdown outlet. Lynn Mall Pharmacy says it's had to close its shutters and a shopper who came to pick up a prescription is sheltering inside. Accounts and images posted on social media made it evident this was a terrorist attack before the Prime Minister labelled it as such in her 5pm press conference. It was the sort of thing we used to say only happened overseas, but only last May people were stabbed in the aisles of a countdown one afternoon by one disturbed person in Dunedin. And after a terrorist's own images were aired by some local media during the breaking news frenzy after the mosque attacks in 2019, the media and regulators here alike acknowledged that they can cause harm to viewers and exposure can even serve terrorist cause. So, understandably, some people reacted badly to the media pushing out raw images again on Friday. A New Zealand Herald push notification, for example, urged people to watch the moment shoppers found a stabbing victim before shots were fired. The video wasn't explicit and it didn't show victims, but it was indeed chilling as the Herald website labelled it. And TVNZ also copped criticism online for tweeting out a subtitled compilation of eyewitness images with gunshots on the soundtrack, which some Twitter users reported as violent content. TVNZ1 News at 6 on Friday then kicked off with images of the attack without warning like this. Tonight on 1 News, a terrorist attack in a supermarket. Gunshots ring out as police shoot a man dead after the attack in Auckland. Multiple people are stabbed and shoppers flee in panic. The prime and while News Hub at 6 also screened the same and similar footage, it gave viewers a heads up. 
Tēnā tātou katoa. Good evening. We warn you the images and sounds in this lead story could be distressing. A lone man yelling Allahu Akbar ran through a West Auckland supermarket this afternoon, stabbing people before he was shot dead. Overseas, even the BBC was asking people here to get in touch with what they saw or might have captured from the scene. And even the next day, Three's News Hub Nation show was telling viewers this. All right, if you've got a news tip, please get in touch. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, or you can email us at nationattv3.co.nz. At her press conference on Friday, the Prime Minister, well aware that speculation can fill an information vacuum, said it was in the public interest that New Zealanders know more about the attacker as soon as possible. But for the media, that wasn't straightforward, as TVNZ's Wendy Petrie told One News viewers at 6pm. However, much more is not able to be reported because of a suppression order made by the courts. That was a considerable frustration for the media because some reporters, like the Prime Minister and the Police Commissioner, did know exactly who the attacker was already. On Friday, the Herald published an eye-opening story that it had first published in the middle of last month, one which detailed the man's past crimes and convictions and sentences, and also explained why he couldn't be charged as a terrorist earlier, because of a long-standing gap in New Zealand's counter-terrorism laws that one judge called an Achilles heel. Herald reporter Sam Hurley had been following the man's case since he first emerged as a danger five years ago. To be honest, I had a gut feeling it was probably him immediately. Um, it was exactly what he had said he was going to do and, and, and planned to do. I had this uh, horrible feeling that um, it was probably going to be him. And on the News Hub Nation show yesterday, the Herald's Sam Hurley also set out exactly why the man was out in the community and able to commit the crime in the first place. The Crown last year actually tried to charge him as a terrorist and he would be the second only person in New Zealand behind the Christchurch Mosque terrorist to be charged under the Terrorism Suppression Act. However, though, the the High Court said um, the legislation simply doesn't allow it and you can't uh, you can't charge someone uh, with an offence for planning a terrorist attack, which is what the Crown was attempting to do. Um, and so it really shows a bit of a loophole in the law um, where someone can plan a terrorist attack but can't be charged with, a, with an offence. That showed the value of having a senior reporter following a case long term. Sam Hurley also revealed later that day the man had been out on bail and was facing other charges for assaulting prison guards while he was in custody. Stuff also revealed on Saturday that the man was ordered to undergo a psychological assessment after being sentenced for possessing ISIS propaganda, but apparently, according to Stuff, no such assessment ever happened. Also yesterday, the Herald's investigative reporter Jared Savage explained to readers why the identity of the so-called lone wolf still couldn't be revealed even after name suppression was lifted. A High Court judge on Friday night had delayed his order by 24 hours to give the man's family an opportunity to seek suppression orders of their own. And the reason for the suppression order granted back in 2018 also couldn't be reported at that time. Now, at this point, questions about the so-called gaps in our anti-terror law were being raised, and specifically, would it have prevented this attack if they'd been filled earlier? And on RNZ's news special yesterday, Otago University law professor Andrew Geddes told Kim Hill it probably wouldn't. The reporting's been that he was unable to face more serious charges under the Terrorism Suppression Act. The government's proposed planning for a terrorist act uh, offence would carry a maximum jail term of seven years. He was convicted of possessing objectionable material. 
the maximum sentence for that is 10 years. So he was actually convicted of a more serious offence than the one that's been proposed. Also, the courts didn't say that he was planning for an attack. They were just they said that even if he was planning, there is a gap that means he couldn't be charged with that. And then it was a question whether that gap should exist. So it's not quite the case that the law was unable to deal with this guy. He was caught, he was charged, he was convicted of actually a more serious offence. It's just that at sentencing, the judge decided that it was important to try to rehabilitate him and gave a sentence of supervision. And that's the reason he was out in the community. And for those insisting that the counter-terror measures had failed, Jack Tame pointed out in his News Talk ZB show yesterday, the attacker was previously arrested for buying a hunting knife because he was being so heavily surveilled, meaning it's also pretty likely he wouldn't have had the freedom to plan a more sophisticated and deadly terror attack. Also on Saturday, David Fisher, a Herald senior writer with experience in security and defence issues, said a change to the Terrorism Suppression Act of 2002 will now be made, which would have landed this man in jail if it had happened years ago. But he said that doesn't solve the problem posed by a small number of dangerous extremists in New Zealand. Indeed, this man had already been in jail, but remained a problem. As News Hub Nation's pundit of the day, Ben Thomas, pointed out yesterday. This was a person who was, you know, so hell-bent on executing some kind of attack that they were literally, you know, after they had been uh, released from a court, you know, from a court hearing, went to buy a knife and then were arrested again. And after that, would just hang out in the knife aisle of a supermarket. You know, that's, that's a kind of single-minded dedication to, you know, and, and the same sort of thing happened with the Christchurch attack. That's that's not, you know, that's that's extreme radicalization. And the number of people who are actually willing to, you know, be gunned down in public or to spend their lives in prison, you know, for the sake of, you know, something that has no rational basis, you know, that is a very small number of people. Ben Thomas said a bigger danger of this attack is that it could create hostility and division between groups of New Zealanders, something the chair of the Federation of Islamic Associations, Abdul Razak, had in mind when he talked to Kim Hill on RNZ's news special yesterday. We are uh, aware the major role that the media and the social media plays in responding to events like this. And the media itself needs to be, as, as they were after March 15th, you know, give a balanced reporting of the facts and, and also they have a very important role to play. Again, what I say is not to raise the temperature. Yeah, I'm not sure social media is renowned for its responsibility. And it wasn't hard to find knee-jerk reactions and finger-pointing on social media this weekend. But no one engaging in that has been given a platform for it by mainstream news media since the attack. While some outlets still seem to want to shock us with details of stuff that's self-evidently shocking when the news breaks, our media, especially the Herald, the biggest news gatherer in Auckland where this attack took place, worked fast and hard to answer big questions that were on people's minds. How did the attack happen? Who was responsible? And could it have been stopped? And even the more technical question of whether our law has led us down here and must now be changed was well explored in quite a short time frame. And that was Jack Tame's parting thought on News Talk ZB on Saturday morning. We should take every prudent step to prevent it from happening, absolutely. But an independent judiciary and appropriate limits on power help to give us the freedom and security that events and people like this guy threaten. Ultimately, they're part of what make New Zealand a good country to live in. 
And so too are our media, getting more practice than they would wish for at responsibly reporting terrorism at home. This week, things went from bad to worse in Afghanistan amid the scramble to get out people who could be targeted by the Taliban now that they're back in charge. And we said that this weekend here on Media Watch, we'd be looking at that and the tricky task of reporting from the country now that the Taliban are calling the shots. Well, events in Auckland have got in the way of us bringing that to you this weekend, but we will bring you that next weekend here on Media Watch, along with a chat with a former foreign correspondent there who was once jailed for months by a hostile regime just for doing his job. Watching the way that they treat journalists is, is I think, going to be a really important barometer of, of the way that they, 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 they plan to operate. This is an RNZ podcast. Last Wednesday, the host of the AM show on three, Ryan Bridge, put a pretty pointless question to the Director General of Health, Dr Ashley Bloomfield, near the end of a live interview just after seven in the morning. Um, what's the wackiest theory you've had from the Prime Minister? Oh, look, um, uh, they're usually just uh, good ideas and some of them align with the sort of things that uh, I and I know probably others are lying awake thinking about just what, you know, what do we need to do to find out how this happened and also to get around it. So Now, prior to that, opposition parties and some broadcasters had been complaining that he and others in charge of our COVID response hadn't been subjected to enough scrutiny. But even they probably didn't mind that Dr Bloomfield didn't stick around to answer this final question. Dr Bloomfield, if you can hear us, are you going to get takeaways today? He's gone. He's gone. He's already gone. He's there. He's uh, he's gone. All right, he's got things to do. Oh, no, he's... No, he's gone. <laughs> well, as this was the first day with most of the country down to alert level three, our media were obsessed with takeaways on Wednesday. At the same time, over on TVNZ's breakfast show, host John Campbell was triggered by a colleague on camera with a cup of coffee in hand. Jess Roden, who's our wonderful reporter there, to get a... Uh, yeah, they, oh, don't, oh, put that coffee down. <laughs> Jess Roden. Boo! Hi, boo! 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 <laughs> How dare you come on the telly and... <laughs> Now, obviously, John Campbell wasn't really bagging reporter Jess Roden there, but earlier on the same show, National Party leader Judith Collins was genuinely biting back via Zoom at John Campbell's co-host Indira Stewart after she asked precisely why her party had forced the issue of resuming Parliament in person. We're an essential uh, business in Parliament. You'll notice the Prime Minister has been uh, coming into Parliament every day. She's been doing press conferences with the media here. This is simply a political attack that's going on against us because we want to actually be able to ask questions and to scrutinise the government. Now that scratchy set too gave political reporters another story about the National Party leader under pressure, but they weren't happy to hear Judith Collins say this about them. We've seen the sort of level of some of the questions that have been used in the in the press conferences, things like, and how are you feeling today? Well, how about asking about the vaccinations? When you're going to have these sorts of things, Parliament is not a nice to have. It is absolutely essential for a democracy. That is why it's acknowledged in the health order. That's why uh, MPs are able to travel for Parliament. It's because it's not just a nice to have. Just like the media, not just a nice to have. It's why you're in the studio this morning. It's because it is actually important. 
Affronted reporters then took to social media to contradict Judith Collins' claim that they'd failed to ask about vaccine rollout hitches at those daily briefings, or that they were in the habit of asking the Prime Minister greasy questions about her welfare. And that was also the reason that News Hub political editor Tova O'Brien pointedly asked Judith Collins this at her next press conference and then put it in the 6pm news that night. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great, thank you, Tova. Well, few in the media would argue with the importance of scrutinising the government in an emergency situation, but there was no common ground in that cranky encounter on TVNZ's breakfast show. Don't attack me for asking the questions that you and the rest of the media should be asking the Prime Minister. I and think I'll there continue are to fair ask questions to ask of you, to. given the decision well, that you I'm, made. And so let's talk about vaccinations. Talking over top of me. On the matter of Parliament in person, Judith Collins went on to say that the House should be open if the parliamentary crashes. And that sounded reasonable, though no one was flying out of Level 4 in Auckland to attend the parliamentary crash, as Judith Collins did to attend Parliament itself. And RNZ's political editor Jane Patterson wasn't the only commentator agreeing with Judith Collins' point that the Prime Minister happily fronts media conferences in person in Parliament most days of the week. And of course, the media are happy to turn up to those. But having forced the issue, most political pundits reckon that little happened on the first day of the slimmed-down, socially distanced session in the House that actually justified all the bother. However, it did give Judith Collins the chance to put to the Prime Minister several questions from a safe distance, including this one. Did the government ask Pfizer to slow down delivery of vaccine? So, as her health minister told News Talk ZB in June... Sorry, her COVID response minister told News Talk ZB in June, quote, we don't end up with a whole lot sitting in the freezer, end quote, and is her government now asking them to speed it up again, as her associate health minister told media yesterday. The member is sharing factually and misleading information. Now, what the Prime Minister dismissed as misleading there was something Judith Collins had heard on the News Talk ZB drive show earlier this week. The country is running out of vaccines in September and it is not due to bad negotiating skills or Pfizer not shipping them on time. It turns out the government actually asked for those vaccine shipments to be delayed. And that big claim from host Heather Duplessy-Allen was based on something Chris Hipkins had told her on the show back in May. Pfizer have absolutely confirmed our order, which is that we will get our 8 million doses in the third quarter. It's a question of uh, exactly the timing of those. So um, they will give us, that we will get them all by the end of September. Now at that time, the health minister told RNZ the same thing, though as we now know, it'll be October before the next big dose of vaccine does arrive. And that prompted the ZB host to pluck another of her interviews with Chris Hipkins out of the archives, one from June, in which Heather Duplessy-Allen asked if September was still the ETA for the next big vaccine dose delivery. Yes, they've indicated for us that they will continue to, to meet that delivery. We're talking to them about whether some of that should be in October, November, to make sure that we're smoothing the deliveries so that we don't end up with a whole lot sitting in the freezer. Uh, but, we're, but yes, they are absolutely committed um, to delivering us the, the doses that we have ordered. And according to the ZB host, that meant this. The reason we are now only getting our big shipment in October and running out in September is because Chris Hipkins asked Pfizer to delay their September shipment to October. And then Heather Duplessy-Allen called the Auckland University Emeritus Professor of Medicine, Des Gorman, for his reaction. Oh, I'm gobsmacked, Heather. Uh, I find it 
just hard to believe. Professor Gorman went on to point out that Pfizer jabs had a pretty long shelf life anyway, so there was really no reason to ask the makers to delay the delivery. But when Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson appeared on Heather Duplessy Allen's show a little later, he was adamant that the government didn't actually do that, and News Talk ZB had misinterpreted something Chris Hipkins had merely misspoken back in June. Two different things are actually being discussed here. This was at an early point in June, and it was about what would happen to um, the, the doses that would come in October, not doses that would come in September. He had told us only days before we would get all of our doses by the end of September. So either you've got... As I said, I've just explained to you why... I understand. ...that he has said he got the wrong... He he misunderstood that, and he should have said October there. And your article that I'm looking at from the 8th of June actually implies that itself as well. Minister, Minister, in that very question, I ask him, are we getting all of our doses by September? He says, yes, but I'm going to get them delayed. So... That's because he's using the understanding, which he corrected today, that actually Pfizer's position was this the This is end a shambles. Do you accept that this looks terrible to the public? It is not a shambles here, though. But ZB's Heather Duplessy-Allen was adamant the government was responsible for delays in vaccine delivery that could cause an imminent shortage. And she also went on to accuse Grant Robertson of slowing the rollout so surpluses would language in storage. So You're once right. again, you'd rather have jabs sitting in the vaccine freezers no. than in people's arms? No. Thanks very much, Minister. And her listeners who'd heard the Prime Minister earlier in the day refer to 800,000 vaccine doses on hand were quick to let Heather Duplessy-Allen know about another apparent inconsistency from Grant Robertson, which Heather Duplessy-Allen also seized upon. And then the Grant Robertson said when he was on with you they only had 690,000. I'm very confused. Yeah, do you know what that is? I suspect that's a case of makey-uppies. If you just pluck some numbers out, people won't check, and then, whoopsie, some people are listening. Now, for one who condemned the government for talking to her listeners like children, you'd think that whoopsie and makey-uppies would grate a little with them. But while Heather Duplessy-Allen didn't hesitate to accuse the Deputy Prime Minister of making up numbers there, anyone can check the vaccines in stock from week to week. The Health Ministry website has a handy chart entitled Vaccines Available for Distribution. This shows the doses held at central warehouses but doesn't include stock in transit or at DHB sites around the country. And that's the main reason that different officials sometimes refer to different numbers for what's available at any given time. Indeed, the next day, political reporter Michael Nielsen at ZB's own sister paper, The Herald, said there were 800,000 doses in stock, but he added that the number changes every few days with new deliveries, which are averaging about 300,000 a week these days. And after Judith Collins repeated in Parliament News Talk ZB's claim that the health minister had instructed Pfizer to delay the delivery of vaccines, Chris Hipkins appeared on Heather Duplessy-Allen's drive show again on Wednesday to tell her this. We have not delayed any deliveries. We've not entered into any agreement with Pfizer to delay any deliveries at this point. But when we get to the point where everybody has been vaccinated, then potentially we would look to delay deliveries if we weren't going to need them, either for population eligibility... And you are having those conversations already? Yes, but we haven't agreed anything. So to say that we've delayed deliveries is just wrong. Now this time, Heather Duplessy-Allen appeared to accept that what she had insisted was true the previous day wasn't actually the case after all. Interestingly, though, the National Party leader, Judith Collins, didn't mention it when she fronted the media the next day, but she did face curly questions like NewsHub asking if she would cancel Christmas for a fresh COVID case if she was Prime Minister. In some cases, to cancel 
a, um, a well-loved event, um, public um, demonstrations of it as such, rather than to have people in lockdown for months as, uh, as could happen. So I think it, it all depend on the circumstances and what the advice was. And for the record, no reporter asked her, how are you today, or where she gets her takeaways. Now, mistakes are made sometimes in the official COVID figures, and some of the media are pretty good at picking them up. And on Thursday, Stuff senior political reporter Henry Cook spotted an anomaly in the latest vaccine data spreadsheet from the Ministry of Health, which suggested that New Zealand is receiving another 1 million doses this week. He contacted the Health Minister's office, which confirmed it was an error and corrected it the same day, leaving everyone better informed and not unnecessarily worried about looming shortages. The day before that, Henry Cook and Stuff data journalist Kate Newton produced an easy-to-read summary of the vaccine rollout in 11 charts. This showed how daily doses have ramped up in recent weeks, the good news, and also how this must slow down if more vaccine sources aren't found soon. And it also showed big disparities across regions and across groups, including vulnerable people. So some good news and some bad news, but all of it based on frequently updated data and not on amplified interpretations of what ministers might have said or meant in interviews months apart. Chris Hipkins wasn't the only one to get a going over on News Talk ZB this week. ZB's Christchurch host John MacDonald responded indignantly to Police Minister Porter Williams when he asked her about the arrest of the Ellerslie MIQ absconder. Do you think you could go away for me and, and find out whether any of those officers were vaccinated? You'd be able to find that out for me? Why don't you put in an OIA, John, like everybody Oh, does. for goodness, for goodness sake. Yeah. Do me a, I, give me a break. Saying, John... And after a live interview on Tuesday where she hesitated for about a second and a half, Associate Health Minister Dr Aisha Verrill was mocked with sound effects on Newstalk ZB like this. Are you confident you're getting this encircled? I think we're, um, I think we're uh, starting to see some positive signs. On Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday, I took a look at the reaction to that, and also journalists pondering the backlash they themselves are getting from people reacting badly to the scrutiny they apply to the COVID response and those responsible for it. That's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website if you missed it, on our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, if you go back about a year and a half, New Zealand's commercial broadcasting bosses were terrified when COVID hit. Advertising income plummeted and no one knew how long the disruption would last. And back then, they were pleading for government help. They all took the wage subsidy for remaining staff and the free-to-air broadcasters gladly accepted the lion's share of a $50 million government assistance package. They also welcomed the government pumping more money into New Zealand On Air and the Public Interest Journalism Fund, and they all cut costs and jobs at that time. In June last year, for example, TVNZ announced 80 redundancies and scrapped a huge contract for content from Warners, and the government promised $30 million if they needed it to survive. Desperate times. But one year later, TVNZ was boasting it had emerged from COVID-19 a whole lot stronger, and this week, TVNZ announced even better results for the financial year that ended in June, reported like this on News Talk ZB. 
TVNZ has had a stellar year in business. Uh, so great, in fact, that the company's going to reward its staff with $2,000 each uh, for a bit of a bonus. The company's reported a net profit of $59 million for the year. Big turnaround from the $26 million loss a year earlier, and the government's going to get a $15 million dividend as a result of that. And TVNZ has also paid back about $5 million it received from the wage subsidy and told the government it doesn't need that $30 million backstop after all. And TVNZ's chief executive, Kevin Kenrick, told News Talk ZB this. Yeah, well, I mean, I think last year we put in a wage freeze and we, we lost a big chunk of roles. Um, so we've, we've had a smaller team that have actually worked pretty hard. They've delivered the best financial results the company's delivered in 18 years. But while Kevin Kenrick was happy to talk about what TVNZ called a strong financial recovery that sets up TVNZ for the future, Kevin Kenrick didn't mention that he wouldn't be a part of that future after this year. The news was a bit buried by the attack at the Lynn Mall on Friday, but TVNZ also announced that day Kevin Kenrick would step down in February 2022 after almost 10 years in charge. But why wait six months? It gives the board time to select a new chief executive heading into the public media future, Kevin Kenrick said. Now that's a reference to the government working towards a new public media entity to replace or incorporate state-owned TVNZ and RNZ by 2023. The business case for that is now a work in progress, but cabinet papers have made it clear that TVNZ's advertising revenue would be critical to it. But Kevin Kenrick has never really voiced strong support for the proposed new public media entity, and when asked last year by MediaWatch if he wanted to lead it, he said simply, it's not my call. And his resignation from TVNZ shows he probably didn't want that call after all. Well, finding a leader who does will be a key task now for TVNZ's board, this week we wanted to ask TVNZ chair Andy Coop what kind of boss they're looking for and how they're contributing to the as-yet-behind-closed-doors plan for the new public media entity. But we haven't had a response from him on that yet. Meanwhile, TVNZ is not the only broadcaster posting bigger profits and cuts in costs lately. Sky TV was particularly vulnerable one year ago when investors feared that belt-tightening households would pretty quickly decide that a Sky subscription was a luxury that could go. But now, things are also going much better bottom-line-wise for them. Sky TV reported a net profit of nearly $50 million for the last financial year last week, and fewer customers left the company in that year than those who left it in the previous financial year. Last year, the pandemic also sparked a bit of panic in the boardroom at NZME, which owns half the country's radio stations and the New Zealand Herald. It cut almost 250 jobs, radio sport, community papers and the pay of its staff to stay afloat. But last week, NZME reported better results too, increased revenues and profit for its first six months to June. It's not quite in the financial shape it was in the pre-COVID era, though getting there with reduced debt and radio stations pulled in almost $50 million in the first six months of the year. And the New Zealand Herald's premium content subscriptions also pulled in just over $5 million in the first half year, a significant sum. Though the Herald's former editor Tim Murphy, now the co-editor at newsroom.co.nz, pointed out one weird anomaly in the bounce back. NZME's property platform One Roof was actually harmed by the booming housing market, he said, because houses had sold so quickly the demand for advertising of them had actually fallen. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this week. We'll be back again with more on the media with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on Nights with Brian Crump. And then we'll be back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.